You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One, two, three, and... Hello, everyone, and welcome to Forgotten True Crime by Oki Investigations. The True Crime Podcast, where we tell the stories of crimes that happened long ago. If you're a True Crime fan, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way, when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Also, check us out on our Facebook page, Okie Investigations, and our blog, truecrime.blog. That's where we're going to post many of the cool things that we found for each episode. This episode, The Visitor, has a lot of exciting stuff for you to dig into. Make sure you go there and check it out. Parts of the story may contain opinions and speculations and should be taken as such. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. We are in the month of February, the month of love. We decide to start an annual event called Be Mine. This will feature true crime stories of love and loss. Many of these stories do not feature a happily ever after, but rather full of misery forevermore. I hope you all enjoyed this story so far. I really enjoyed writing it. It's one of those stories that's kind of occupied my mind ever since I started researching it, which is a great thing. That's definitely, for me, a a showing of a good story, I guess. But I'm not going to take too much time here with the introductions. Let's get into the story. In part one, we've narrowed down the list of two suspects. One of them, Professor Snook, who detectives have zeroed in on. The other was Marion T. Myers, the state researcher who put himself into the investigation. Marion was let go after it was found out he was not in the area at the time of the murder. Professor Snook was unmoving during all of the questioning, but it wasn't until they revealed that they had a new witness step forward that everything changed. 
the news of the professor's involvement in what might be a murder was national news. There was a paper in the state of Ohio that didn't have this on the front page for just several weeks. Along with that press came multiple photos of the victim and the professor, just like the ones we've posted over at truecrime.blog. Now, people have come forward saying that they often saw the two together, but one man came forward with information that helped break open this case. A bellman for the local YMCA decided that he needed to tell police what he knew of Miss Hicks and Professor Snook. He told the detectives that Miss Hicks rented an apartment from the YMCA and often came home with Professor Snook at her side. He would often go and stay the night with her, so much so that he thought that they were married. This news was precisely what the detectives were looking for, a current link to the relationship of the professor and his victim. They went down to the local YMCA and they took the keys that Miss Hicks had on her when she died. They wanted to see if the key fit the lock. But when they arrived and placed the key in the lock, it didn't work. So they decided to check up on this story with the manager of the YMCA and see if any part of this story was genuine. The manager told the detectives that Miss Hicks did indeed live at the YMCA and that it was Professor Snook who paid for the apartment every month. The morning the body was found before the news hit that Miss Hicks was dead, the professor had come into the YMCA and gave her the keys to the apartment. He told her that it was no longer needed. He wasn't going to rent that apartment anymore. And then that was that. He gave the set of keys to the manager and then he left. When prosecutor John J. Chester revealed that he knew about the apartment and the nature of the relationship between the two, the professor seemed to break. He lowered his head and seemed ashamed of what he had done to himself and his family. The prosecutor questioned Professor Snook and asked him if he had a relationship with Miss Hicks. Now, he didn't verbally reply, but he did shake his head, yes. The prosecutor then asked him about the keys. The manager of the YMCA told them that he was given two keys to the room and that he returned those two keys. They asked how he had both sets of keys if the other was supposed to be with Miss Hicks. Professor Snook finally spoke and said, you know how. The prosecutor asked to clarify, you took it from her body? And the professor simply said, yes. The admission of guilt caused the prosecutor to immediately end the interview at that time. They got a stenographer in the office right away. They knew that the professor was ready to tell them a confession, and they wanted it all recorded. 
1929, this was the best way to record interviews and confessions. They'd often use a stenotype machine that would look like a typewriter but had a lot fewer keys. They would write in shorthand to keep up with the conversation. You still see them in courtrooms today and have been in use since the early 1800s. Once everyone was in place, they recorded what the professor had to say. The following is word for word of what was said. What is your name? James Howard Snook. Your age? 49. Where do you live? 349 West 10th Street. Now, tell the stenographer in your own language what happened on the night of June 13th. I met Theora Hicks about three years ago. The friendship continued in a very intimate way ever since. She was a very good companion. I have been living with my wife during this three-year period and regarded my wife very highly and respect her very much as a wife. But she lacked some of the companionship afforded by Ms. Hicks. During the three years that I knew Ms. Hicks, I assisted her in many ways towards the education, but I found out it wasn't appreciated as much as I thought it should be. Our association was not a love affair in any sense of the word, but in time, Ms. Hicks developed a more determined attitude in regard to dictating my movements. And the final accumulation of this occurred on the 13th of June of this year, when I met Miss Hicks at the corner of 12th and High Street in the city of Columbus. When we both got into my Ford Coupe and proceeded to drive to Love Avenue, then west out to Fisher Road and to the Columbus Rifle Range of New York Central Railroad Company. Nearing when she reprimanded me against leaving the city with my family for the weekend, as I planned to do, she threatened that if I did so, she would take the life of my wife and baby. During this quarrel, she grabbed for the purse in which she sometimes carried a 41 caliber Derringer that I had given her. In the struggle, she was hit on the head with a hammer. In the attempt to stun her, she continued desperately and an increased number of blows of increasing force was necessary to stop her. Realizing then that her skull was fractured and to relieve her suffering, I severed her juggler vein with my pocket knife. I then proceeded to pick up the things that had been scattered during the struggle and left. The instrument I used to quiet her was a hammer lying in the back seat. After leaving the rifle range, I proceeded home, tossing the purse from the quarry bridge into the Scioto River on my way. After the struggle was over, I discovered the gun was not in the purse. The professor went on to set up his defense. He told the officers that he was afraid that Miss Hicks would follow up on her threats when she said that she would kill his family. He said, 
When she started to get out of the car, I grabbed a hammer from the ledge of the back seat and hit her with the flat side of it. She got out, and I followed, hitting her again and again. Damn you, I'll kill you, were her last words. I kept hitting her. I struck her once with the round end of the hammer. That was pretty hard. She was unconscious and then suffering. She had my sympathy. I didn't want to hit her anymore. I hated to do that. She was lying on her back and moaning slightly when I took out my pocket knife and cut her juggler vein. Her handbag and keys came out of the car in the struggle. The wound she had on the abdomen and the back was machine cuts. She got them when she fell against the car. He then described returning home in a haze. He sat in the dark in his kitchen, thinking of his actions when his wife came down to check on him. She didn't see the blood all over him because it was just too dark. He changed, went to bed, but really didn't sleep. The next day, he pretended as if it just didn't happen and didn't know that the body was found until it hit the news. A grand jury was assembled listening to the evidence at hand. On June 22nd, they decided to indict Professor Snook on first-degree murder charges. They believed that there was enough for first-degree murder because the confession that he slit her juggler vein. The hammer blows were in response to the danger that the professor thought himself to be in, but it was the act of killing her when she was subdued that made this a possible murder. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. On June 24th, 1929, Professor Snook and his attorneys attended the first hearing before the trial. They would first need to know how the professor intended to plea. The professor admitted his guilt and said that he would plead guilty, but he could change his mind. This was not unexpected by the state. They knew from his confession that he was trying to make it look as if he had to kill her to protect his family. He might also explore other avenues, the temporary insanity plea. This is the I snapped and I lost my mind when this happened. I had no control over my actions. It was slightly suggested that when the professor spoke about the hammer blows, he felt as if he had to protect everyone. He did it so he could protect his family. So since they expected it, the state had already set up an interview the next day for Professor Snook with three doctors. They would each examine his mental and physical health. 
They spent most of the day with the professor. They took a blood sample to examine and had a complete series of tests done. By the end of the day, they could soundly say at the time that the professor was sane. They just had to wait for the blood tests to be examined, which at this point in time could take weeks. In response to this, the defense hired their own medical team to examine the professor as well. They also asked for a change of venue, and they wanted a trial date pushed back. It was set for July 22nd, just a little over a month after the murder. This was denied by the court. The judge stated he didn't believe that anything could be gained by delaying the case. There were no more fact findings. There was no reason to really wait. But the defense had another trick up their sleeve. If they changed their plea to not guilty for the reason of insanity, the court would have no choice but to delay due to having to further judge the sanity of the professor at the time of the murder. The state's findings at this point weren't the official word for the court. The judge, who wanted no delays, called both sides into his chambers to discuss what they would do. The judge ordered that the professor be examined again before the trial starts, and that would cause little to no delay if they worked over the weekend. Both sides agreed, so the weekend before the trial was to have started, three more doctors came in to examine Professor Snook. By Monday morning, their findings were that, well, he was sane. So Professor Snook changed his plea to not guilty. He acted in self-defense. They also stated that he had emotional insanity. He was just overcome with his emotions, which led to Miss Hicks's death. The trial began on August 3rd, 1929. After the jury selection had ended, they had one delay when a juror got sick, but they were able to replace her quickly. The state first called the state doctor who performed the autopsy on Miss Hicks. He stated that he believed that this was premeditated murder. Something that the defense jumped on right away. They asked him to prove that statement from his findings. The doctor pointed out the professor cut her throat to end the suffering of damage that he caused her. They called the owner of the cleaners where Professor Snook got his suit cleaned and that had bloodstains on it. They testified that the professor brought it in in the morning after the murder. They called several witnesses, including one that came forward that had seen Ms. Hicks with someone in the parking lot of the rifle range on the night of the murder. They appeared to have been fighting at the time. He said he didn't stop because he had his daughters with him. He didn't think about it until the news of Ms. Hicks's death was published. He waited to report on what he had seen because he just didn't want to be involved. This was important because, according to the confession, Miss Hicks didn't get out of the car for very long without being hit over the head with a hammer. 
this eyewitness showed that there was more to the story from what the professor was willing to admit. Then the state revealed that they did some really odd tests. You see, they started the theory that the professor drugged Miss Hicks and then killed her. This theory was formed when the doctor who did the autopsy found some beef in her stomach, something that she didn't have time to digest before she died. They believed it was laced with drugs. So the doctor gave the undigested beef to a dog. The dog acted weird and wobbly after eating the meat, as if it was drugged with some kind of sedative. I found this to be completely crazy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's one way to test a theory, I guess. I mean, think about it. I would be wobbly and acting sick, too, if I was giving undigested meat from the stomach of a dead person. Drugged or not. But the test was done, and it was considered evidence in the doctor's mind that the meat was, well, drugged. Then the newspaper writer, who also gained a confession from the professor, also testified of what he was told. The defense challenged this because it was taken while the professor was under duress, but the judge allowed it to give a complete picture of the confession. The defense called character witnesses to the stand. They had Mrs. Snook and the professor's mother to testify what kind of person he really is. They then called Professor James Snook to the stand. He testified to his entire life story, how he met Miss Hicks, and how they fell in love with each other. They had an understanding that they would see each other for physical pleasure, not much more. He told a story of how Miss Hicks began experimenting with drugs and became addicted to them. He told of the night that she died and recounted of what happened, how she threatened the life of his family, and that he believed that she had her gun on her. He taught her how to shoot, and she was good at it. He was an Olympic gold medalist for shooting, and he knew what he was talking about. He stated that he was only acting in self-defense when he killed her. The case was handed over to a jury. They had come back with the decision in record-breaking time. Within 30 minutes, they found their decision. They found Dr. James Snook guilty of murder in the first degree. They fixed death as his sentence. The jury obviously didn't believe the story that the professor had put together. It was hard to believe that a firearm expert like Dr. Snook would kill someone in self-defense, thinking that they had a gun when they didn't. He bled her out to kill her. In the months leading up to his execution, attorneys for the professor tried hard to save his life but each appeal was struck down. He was scheduled to die on February 28, 1930, when the governor declined to step in and stop the execution. Dr. Snook did something extraordinary. He confessed to everything. The prison warden came in to see Dr. Snook before he was to be put to death. It was there 
where he heard the full confession of what had happened. He told the warden that Miss Hicks was going to expose him. She would tell the world about their affair and that he would be ruined. It would expose him, end his marriage, and end his teaching career. So he simply planned to kill her. This was the only way to ensure that he would not be exposed. And he honestly believed that no one would be able to tie him to the murder. He was shocked when they got to him so fast. On March 1st, 1930, Dr. Snook stepped into the death chamber. Without any assistance, he took a seat in the chair. The preacher prayed for him, and then soon after, he was put to death. James Snook was buried in his family plot, but they did not use his last name on the tombstone. They used his middle name as his last, so no one would damage the stone. It's amazing that these kinds of things have been going on for so long. I am always hearing about people in power taking advantage of others. We see it in politics, media, and in personal businesses. Over a year ago, I learned that a creator like myself did something horrible things with a young woman when they attended a show that he was working on. When that news broke, it was a real eye-opener for me. You just never know who someone is until it's too late. Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed this series. It was incredible to research. Make sure you rate the podcast and share it with a friend. We want to grow and provide more content. And the only way we can make that happen is with your help. You can follow me and my exploits by following me on social media. The links are in the description. I hope you all have a great week, and I'll see y'all next time. See ya. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.